The very essence of all cancers is a change in the way that cells divide. I remember sitting in there thinking, you know, it's not happening, it's not real, it can't be real. It's something that we don't talk about. This feeling of being overwhelmed, it will get better once you have a plan and you know what to expect and what's going to happen. It's not going to be like this all the time. The Thing About Cancer. A podcast from Cancer Council New South Wales. Information and insights. For people affected by cancer. Hello, I'm Julie McCrossan. And today, the thing about cancer is that new treatments are emerging all the time. Targeted therapy, five years ago, that was the most exciting thing that was happening. The question today, uh, what is the most exciting and important thing that's uh, happening in the cancer treatment area? I would say immunotherapy. We're talking to Dr Stephen Cow, a medical oncologist from the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse in Sydney. You might have heard about immunotherapy and targeted therapy in the news, or perhaps your doctors have recommended them as part of your cancer treatment. But what exactly are they, and how are they different from traditional chemotherapy? In a moment, Stephen's going to tell us all about these exciting new treatments. Just to be clear, this podcast contains general information only, so we recommend you talk to appropriate professionals about your individual situation. You can call Cancer Council 13 11 20 if you have any questions. To begin, there are three main types of treatment for cancer. Can you run through just in a nutshell what each of them is and what they involve and then a little bit more on what you do as a medical oncologist, but what are the three to fit your work in with that other triad? Yes, yeah, so I guess the, uh, the first weapon... Uh, that's probably best known to our patients, our surgery. So I guess to cure a cancer, we really need to take them out uh, if uh, possible. The second uh, weapon we have is radiotherapy. And essentially, that's very high dose x-rays to uh, target localised cancer spots. Um, And so that's what radiotherapy or radiation oncologist uh, would do. Um, The third weapon really is what I call systemic therapy, uh, and that's what I do. Uh, I'm a medical oncologist, and that's uh, my job to prescribe systemic therapy. And what does that mean? So systemic therapy essentially means it's a treatment that uh, gets into our patient's uh, body and it circulates everywhere, whether it's through uh, a tablet, which then subsequently get absorbed into the bloodstream, or you go directly into the bloodstream via uh, intravenous uh, infusion uh, so that it can target uh, all the cancer spots in the body. And that can be divided into either chemotherapy, hormonotherapy, targeted therapy, or immunotherapy. Okay, so could you explain what chemotherapy is? So chemotherapy uh, is basically a drug that uh, is designed to can- uh, kill Uh, cancer cells. Uh, So that's what we call cytotoxic. Now that word cytotoxic, I understand that cyto means cells. So it means the drugs are toxic to cells? Well, essentially it uh, typically uh, affects the way the fast-growing cells divide and cause them to die. Because cells dividing is how they grow and, and cancer is like too much growth. Correct. And that's why chemotherapy are designed uh, to target those fast-growing cells. I think chemotherapy is the systemic treatment that most people have heard of, but you mentioned there are three other types of systemic treatment that you as a medical oncologist might recommend. 
There's hormonal therapy. I understand some cancers, like some types of breast or prostate cancer, grow in response to the body's natural hormones. So hormonal therapy can be used to block those hormones and stop the cancer growing. And then there are the two newer types of treatment, targeted therapy and immunotherapy. And that's mostly what we're going to talk about in this episode. Can you give us an idea how common it is to get these newer treatments? Well, look, I think that's a very difficult question to answer because I can't generalise this for different kind of cancers. Now, you know, there are cancers like uh, brain cancer that really has no specific targeted uh, therapy of note currently. And then on the other hand, you have a lung cancer uh, whereby, you know, we know about 20 to 25% of lung cancer patients can potentially be eligible for a targeted therapy. Um, and so it's really difficult to know overall uh, what we're talking about in terms of proportion of patients that are eligible uh, for uh, this type of targeted uh, approach to their treatment. But certainly different cancers would have different kind of targets, uh, different kind of treatment, um, and that needs to be discussed with their, with their oncologist. And certainly it is certainly not a treatment uh, that would be uh, suitable for everybody. Okay, well, let's talk about these new treatments in turn. First of all, what is targeted therapy? Um, you know, some cancers have specific um, genetic changes that we believe is driving the cancer to grow, to divide and to spread. And so if we find a specific target, then we can use a targeted therapy, uh, again, whether it's oral tablet or intravenous uh, infusions, uh, Basically, the drug is targeting this uh, specific genetic uh, abnormality to stop it to grow and divide and spread. How is it different to chemotherapy? Yeah, so I guess traditionally what we think the effect of chemotherapy is that it's not targeted. Although it's uh, targeting fast-growing cells, there's a lot of fast-growing cells in our body as well, such as hair, the lining of our gut, um, and that is why um, we get significant uh, side effects with nausea and vomiting, the diarrhea, uh, the hair loss, and things like that. Um, so while it's targeting at the fast-growing cells, a lot of our normal cells get uh, affected, and that's why the side effect profile is so high. Now, in terms of targeted therapy, as I mentioned, we're trying to find a genetic abnormality within the tumour cell so that the idea is that the drug would target that abnormality to stop it from growing. So theoretically, it sounds fantastic and, uh, you know, theoretically the side effects would substantially be better than a blanket treatment that may affect uh, all, all, all cells. Um, so in terms of side effects, it's much, uh, much better. It's not side effect free, though. Uh, it can still have um, uh, side effects, just much more milder. Uh, and uh, is there some circumstances in which uh, some side effects of targeted therapy can be uh, more serious and of more concern, that while generally uh, there's lesser side effects, there are exceptions to that, that it's important to let your clinical team know about if you experience them? 
Oh, absolutely. So I guess uh, there's a, a potential severe side effects with any of the treatments that uh, that we prescribe. Um, so, for example, um, you know, Tarsiva or Erisa is a targeted therapy uh, for uh, for lung cancer. Now, while we know from clinical trials that uh, it's um, much better tolerated than chemotherapy, uh, there are specific side effects that we warn our patients about, such as diarrhea uh, or rash. Now, while rash often is a cosmetic concern, uh, for patients it can be very annoying uh, and distressing uh, for patients, and certainly diarrhea. Sometimes, really, it can get so bad that we need to stop the drugs for. And so while the chance of you uh, having severe side effects are much better than chemotherapy, it's not impossible. Um, and people still need to be aware uh, of the importance of recognising those uh, uh, problems. So basically, you just keep talking to your team and letting them know what's happening to you and is this normal? Correct, yeah. correct. Let's turn now to immunotherapy, this exciting development in cancer treatment. Can you explain what immunotherapy is? That is a brand new kind of approach, uh, looking at uh, trying to increase uh, each individual's immune system to try to recognise cancer cells. Um, you know, cancer cells are very smart little things. Uh, basically, they develop mechanisms to protect themselves. Now, our immune system is... Um, designed to detect anything that shouldn't be there. Uh, so whether it's an infection, a bug, or a cancer cells that shouldn't be there, they basically should be recognising them and kill it. And somehow the cancer cells be has become very smart. They evade uh, the, uh, the, the s surveillance from the immune system, and that's how they keep growing. Um, and so immunotherapy is a way to try to boost our immune system up so that they can start seeing those horrible little cells so that they can kill it. I understand there are different types of immunotherapy, but the older drugs weren't that successful. What is this new immunotherapy that everybody's talking about? Checkpoint inhibitors, which is the, uh, the most common immunotherapy that uh, the oncologists are talking about, really. And it's, it's got to do with the pathway in which uh, we uh, stimulate the immune system. Uh, checkpoint inhibitors basically encompass Keytruda and Optivo. And, and can you explain Keytruda? Is that for curative intent or for palliative intent and is it used in particular cancers? So I guess Keytruda or Optivo, at the moment we are finding uh, great results with melanoma uh, in the palliative uh, setting. There's also increasing evidence that uh, it's effective in lung cancer as well. Now, the landscape, as you said, is moving so fast. There's lots of research, um, and I suspect that uh, you know it's going to be coming on board for our head and neck cancer patients, uh, you know, bladder cancer patients, um, and so I think that landscape is is moving pretty pretty quickly. Um, now, there are a lot of interest of bringing the immunotherapy in the curative intent setting, um, and that's where a lot of research is being done. So people who have uh, surgery, uh, followed by chemotherapy, and the question is whether adding immunotherapy to that uh, for a certain period of time would increase the cure rate. So at the moment, we're not using immunotherapy in the early stage cancers, um, but uh, it may change. Stephen, I understand you can still get side effects with immunotherapy. 
If we're boosting the immune system, why should there be troublesome side effects? Surely if the immune system is working better, it should be okay. Yeah, so I guess if your immune system is too active, then potentially it can start uh, gobbling up your normal cells. Um, And again, it's uh, expected um, potential side effects, uh, and we call that immune-related problems, uh, or... uh, resembles uh, in the uh, general population this autoimmune uh, problems. So essentially, um, it can cause inflammatory changes in any of our organs. So it can affect the skin, causing a rash. It can trivially cause arthritis because it causes inflammation in the joints. Um, But more seriously, it can cause uh, inflammation of your lung. It can cause inflammation of the liver kidney, the intestine, uh, causing life-threatening problems because essentially your immune system is turning its uh, head against your normal uh, organs. And and presumably you monitor the patient closely to check these negative things aren't happening. How do you monitor? Well, so I guess there are things that we can objectively monitor, uh, such as blood tests. So we can see what the liver is doing, we can see what the kidney is doing, we can see what the thyroid hormone is doing because it can attack your thyroid gland as well. But a lot of it is also to do with educating our patients about symptoms uh, because obviously we can't uh, objectively uh, detect diarrhoea uh, if there's uh, inflammation of the the intestine. So we rely on patients to alert to us as well uh, of the potential symptoms uh, that can uh, be indicative of something serious going on. And the key uh, uh, symptoms to watch out for? Well, so there, as I said, there multiple organs that can be affected. So there are multiple symptoms that uh, can occur. So I guess if we're talking about inflammation of the intestine, people need to watch out for diarrhea, uh, people need to watch out for bleeding from the back passage and, abdom- and, and, and tummy pains. Um, if we are talking about inflammation of the lung, people need to be aware that they may get more short of breath, they may start to cough um, and have chest pains uh, and just feeling difficult uh, in, in, in breathing. Now, the other thing to uh, really to emphasise is that this sounds all very scary, um, but uh, the chance of very severe uh, side effect and reaction is extremely low. Um, and most people have very little or no side effects from those, uh, from those treatments. And again, the key is to work with your treating uh, doctor and your treating team with the nurses and everybody else so that if you're not sure, just call um, and let them know what's happening to you. You're listening to The Thing About Cancer, a podcast from Cancer Council New South Wales. I'm Julie McCrossan and I'm talking to Dr Stephen Cow, a medical oncologist from the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse, about two key developments in cancer treatment, targeted therapy and immunotherapy. This is a rapidly changing area, so talk to your treatment team to find out the latest. And of course, you can also call Cancer Council 13 11 20 if you have any questions. If you want more information about how targeted therapy and immunotherapy work, visit our podcast page. Just go to cancercouncil.com.au forward slash podcasts and click through to this episode. You can also go to that page to find more podcasts. In a moment, 
Stephen is going to talk about the benefits of these two new treatments and how you might be able to get access to them. Let's chat about the practical stuff, exactly how targeted therapy and immunotherapy drugs are given. I believe some of these drugs are administered like chemotherapy through an intravenous drip that's known as an intravenous infusion. Can you explain what's involved for someone who's listening to this and it's literally their first encounter, they've never been to a chemo ward? Yeah, so it's not as scary as people think. Uh, it's actually, we try to make the environment as relaxed as possible. Um, essentially, it's just like any wards, there may be chairs or beds uh, that people sit or lie uh, to receive the treatment. For intravenous infusion, essentially the nurse will come along, find a vein, put a cannula in uh, to access that vein, um, and then uh, appropriate uh, medication gets infused into that uh, into that drip. And once that's all done, we take the drip out and patients go home. So it's all administered as an outpatient uh, basis. You don't need to stay in hospital per se uh, to receive any of those treatments. Can targeted therapy sometimes be tablets that you take at home? Correct. Um, so again, for example, Tassiva or Erisa, you simply take one tablet uh, once a day. Uh, at home and you come and see your oncologist every few weeks to just make sure that everything is going uh, smoothly. Um, so uh, quite a few of those targeted therapy are administered at home uh, via tablet. And is immunotherapy also sometimes given as tablets? Right now, the, all the immunotherapy treatments are all intravenous. So there's no tablet form of immunotherapy drugs. If you're having this targeted therapy or immunotherapy, how long do you need to keep having it? Look, so I think it's important to uh, differentiate uh, treatment that is aiming at uh, curative uh, intent versus uh, palliative intent. And I guess if we're thinking about curative intent, it means that we're administering uh, this treatment, uh, hoping that we would increase the cure rate, whereas palliative intent means that uh, uh, patients have incurable uh, cancer and we're trying to uh, improve their quality of life, control the cancer for longer and give patients more time. Now, typically with curative intent treatment, uh, prescribed treatment would have a finite number of months or cycles or years. In the palliative setting though, when we're trying to control the cancer, there's no definite set number of cycles or, or, or number of months. We just keep going until it either stops working or it's causing too much havoc uh, in terms of side effects. I've heard that one of the issues that can happen with targeted therapy is a particular drug might work for a while and then the cancer cells adapt and it stops working. Yes, typically. So... I guess one of the exciting things that uh, are happening is, you know, I said five years ago we excited about targeted therapy because they're first generation targeted therapy and we put patients on those and, you know, after a year it may stop working and then we'll go to chemotherapy five years ago, whereas now uh, we have other newer targeted therapy to target how, why the, the patient's tumour stopped responding to the first lot of tablets. And now we have increasing uh, options uh, in that uh, arena. Um, 
So the benefits of the new treatments, you, you've, you've already indicated fewer side effects generally. What are the other, if you had to sum up why it's worth investing in the research into immunotherapy and to targeted therapies, why are these so important going forward? Well, because I think there are a couple of things. One is that uh, with targeted therapy, I guess we're more precise in what we are targeting, meaning that the response rate are much higher than blanketed uh, treatments such as chemotherapy when we find a target. And um, it can work for a long time. And the other very important issue is that because it's targeted, as I said before, the side effect profile are much better. So while it can still have side effects, the chance of it uh, occurring is much lower than, um, than chemotherapy typically. And do some of these treatments uh, deal with cancer, are effective with cancer, where previously there wouldn't have been treatment options? Yes. So I guess, for example, in the old days, uh, when we look at lung cancer trials, the average uh, lifespan for our lung cancer patients are about 10 months. Um, but now entering this targeted therapy when we're you know, choosing patients with specific mutations such as EGFR, now their lifespan can be two, three, four years. So that's a clear change. And in the old days, without those targeted therapy, um, people were not definitely not living as long as they are now. And when you say the old days, what are you thinking? 10 years. 10 years, right. So a very significant change in 10 years. And I guess the other very important thing about immunotherapy is that we're observing very long-term control. So I think that's the exciting part. While the response rate may not be as high as targeted therapy, if you do respond, um, some patient can expect very long-term response. So, you know, when you talk to um, melanoma oncologists, uh, they are seeing you know, patients who have uh, melanoma, cancer that has spread beyond the skin, in the liver, in the bones and uh, in the lungs, after immunotherapy, their cancer are completely gone for four, five years. And that is unheard of in the past. So the exciting thing about immunotherapy is that uh, it can have the potential of controlling the cancer long-term. And if these treatments are so effective in certain circumstances, why aren't they offered to everyone as initial treatment? Because sometimes you don't get them initially, is that right? Well, I guess the recommendation of treatment typically come from uh, evidence from clinical trials, what is published, what is known. So I guess we don't know. I, I guess inherently we would think that if it works Later, it should work in the first line setting or even bring it forward in the curative intent uh, setting. But, you know, it, it, it's not always the case. Um, and so I think, you know, we have to practice uh, what is known uh, based on, on the clinical trials because you have to remember that they're not benign. Things can still go wrong. There are still side effects uh, associated with any of those treatments. And if there's no evidence that it's going to work better than standard treatment that we have, then I don't think that uh, it is the right thing to, to, to do. Just in a nutshell, what is a clinical trial? Well, I think clinical trial is basically a, 
experiment, if you like. Uh, it's an experiment involving our patients uh, looking at whether this new treatment is going to be safe, effective, or better than what we have already. Now, you'd be aware that um, some medications are on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, the government subsidy, and some aren't. And sometimes people are aware that while these medications are very expensive, if they believe there's a chance that it may benefit them, people even consider um, getting their superannuation or even mortgaging their houses or going into debt. Can you talk about access to medications that aren't yet on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme but which may benefit patients? Are there ways you can get access either through money or through clinical trials? And if so, what's the process? So I think that is indeed a very difficult situation for our patients um, because, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, you don't want patients to miss out on a potential, you know, treatment that uh, going to benefit them. At the same time, you know, there are patients that simply cannot afford it and you don't want to make uh, patients to feel you know, very guilty uh, for not being able to access, or the family guilty about not being able to access uh, expensive treatment. I guess with a lot of those new treatments, potentially you can access them through clinical trials. Um, and that, again, is a discussion with your um, oncologist about what is potentially available. It may not be the immunotherapy drug that you have heard of, such as Keytruda, but there could be immunotherapy drugs under development that works exactly the same way as uh, as Keytruda. And in that way, you know, clinical trials are all free of charge um, and uh, you can have uh, the the appropriate treatment uh, as, as required. I guess if there is no clinical trials, then uh, really the only way to access is it through through uh, self-funding and in some cases some drug companies would um, provide some form of compassionate access program and again the oncologists uh, would uh, be aware of what is available and what is not and often the drug company would substantially uh, reduce the cost not to zero um, but much uh, lower than the commercial rate. And so what sort of amounts of money can be involved? Are you able to give us some examples? So at the moment I guess for for example, for Keytruda, the cost uh, for the drug is roughly about $6,000 to $7,000 um, per infusion, um, and that is given every three weeks. So the schedule uh, in which we give Keytruda is basically one infusion every three weeks. For how long? So in the palliative setting, it's for as long as it works. Um, I guess... The good thing about it is that if you do decide to pay for it, usually after three infusions or four infusions, you'll get an idea of whether it's uh, worthwhile continuing because we'll know whether it's working or not. If it's not working, then you stop. But if it's working, it's great for, for the patients, but it also means that you have to keep paying uh, for that recurring cost, uh, which is six to 7000 every three, three weeks. It's a very challenging situation. I, I, I was once um, with a group of women with ovarian cancer diagnoses and uh, an informal luncheon, and people were discussing quite seriously the choice between keeping finance money available for their children's education after they were gone or spending it on extending their life and being with their children. And I, I don't think I've ever experienced a more 
challenging conversation in my life. Yeah. And that's part of your world, I assume, as a medical oncologist. Yeah, it's very difficult. And I guess um, the other aspect of it is that there's no guarantee as well. And so, you know, just because you've spent all this money, you know, we can't guarantee that the response rate is 100%. Uh, meaning that, you know, you could pay for all these uh, drugs and have no benefit out of it and the cancer can continue to grow, which is the, you know, the difficult decision. My final question is the next big things on the horizon, the next big developments, what, what are we looking at? Well, I think there are several things on the horizon. One is uh, combination therapies or combination of immunotherapy. So as I said, checkpoint inhibition is what we have now, which has been proven to be successful. And we know that some people uh, do not respond to that. Um, And I guess the idea is that immune system is much more complex than that. And so the idea is that if we add another drug which acts differently uh, to checkpoint inhibition uh, on the immune system, maybe we'll be able to increase the, uh, the rate in which uh, patients will respond. So there are lots of clinical trials using that approaches of combination of immunotherapy or combining immunotherapy with uh, our traditional chemotherapy with the idea that hopefully we can increase the uh, rate of response as well as increasing the duration of response, because that's what's important, the duration of response. We want our patients to be here for as long as possible. And I think the other big thing is that uh, we know that invariably our treatment stops working, which is the sad thing. And even with targeted therapy where, you know, up to 80% of people respond after a year or so, it stops uh, working. And so now there's a lot of work in uh, looking at uh, why it stops working so that we can design new drugs to target uh, the, you know, the reason why it stops working. And I think there's a lot of push for personalised treatment as well, and I think that is a big thing. Um, I think we're going to see more and more kind of biomarker-driven trials. What does that at... mean? So what that means is that we look, we, we put the tumour through, you know, a panel of testing uh, to see, you know, whether there are, you know, we can find this specific uh, change within the gene that may be driving the growth of the tumour and so that we can target it and stop it from growing. So I think that will be uh, something that uh, we'll be increasingly relying on. More precise and, and more personal. Correct. That's it for this episode of The Thing About Cancer. Thanks to Dr Stephen Cow for sharing his knowledge and insights. If you're looking for more information, you can ring the Cancer Council 131120 Information and Support Service from anywhere in Australia or go to cancercouncil.com.au forward slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. So leave us a review on iTunes or on our website. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, you can do it in Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting app. If you found this episode helpful, you might be interested to know that we're doing a podcast about genetic tests for people with cancer. 
We talked to Dr Hilda High about when you might need a genetic test and how genetic tests can be used to match targeted therapies to particular cancers. Cancer genetics can um, provide a lot of information, particularly if you think it will change what you do or how you do it, then you should try and get that information early. Look for that episode, Genetic Tests and Cancer, on our website at cancercouncil.com.au forward slash podcasts. The stories and experiences contained in this podcast represent the views and opinions of the speakers. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Cancer Council New South Wales. This podcast contains general information only and Cancer Council New South Wales recommends you obtain independent advice specific to your circumstances from appropriate professionals. I'm Julie McCrossan and you've been listening to The Thing About Cancer, a podcast from Cancer Council New South Wales, produced by Jenny Bruce and Miles Martignoni.